Exodus chapter 15. And Lord, again, we pray that you'll bless tonight. We're here to study your word. Open our hearts to it now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the features that makes college football so enjoyable and so popular is the fight song. Every school has a tune that the marching band plays that stirs the emotions, that leads the team to victory. Let me see if you recognize these fight songs. The first one will be music to your ears. The first one will be music to your ears. The first one you'll enjoy, it will be music to your ears. They've been playing with it all day. If you're a Georgia Bulldog fan, you know what that one is. That's glory, glory to old Georgia. Now these next two are like fingernails scraping down the blackboard. We won't be able to listen to them long. Number two. Maybe even more so. It's coming. I'm dreading it. Maybe it's coming. This is kind of like the team that plays this song. They get your hopes real high, and then they just completely let you down. That's the Georgia Tech fight song. most famous fight song of them all. Tell me if you recognize this one. I've got six, but we'll never get to all six. This is taking a little longer than we had hoped. Notre Dame, Notre Dame victory march. Now this next one is just for Mark Lawson. I just knew if I did this and didn't include this next one, Mark Lawson would get really upset with me. So, would you like to dance to it, Mark? This is Boomer Sooner, University of Oklahoma. And last but not least, in honor of the national champions, it's University of Sooner. You know, in my mind, this was all going to come off a lot better than it actually Okay, that's enough. And yet all these fight songs pale in comparison to the fight song that we find in Exodus chapter 15. God's parting of the Red Sea. His mighty victory over the Pharaoh and the Egyptians inspired Moses to compose a fight song for Israel to sing. As a matter of fact, this is the first song or the first psalm in all of the Bible. Apparently, Moses was not only a great deliverer, he was also a great composer. And tonight, we'll study Moses' lyrics. Sadly, he's no longer with us to play the tune. You all know that Moses is dead. I guess you could say he's now decomposing. But verse 1 tells us, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. In other words, God never ekes out of victory. Did you know God never wins at the buzzer? All his victories are by the slaughter rule. He always skunks his opponents. God leads the league in blowouts. As Moses put it, he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord, catch this, is a man of war. The Lord Jehovah is his name. Notice God is no pacifist. He is a man of war. God is not squeamish in the heat of battle. He certainly doesn't faint at the sight of blood. 
you know, some wars are just. There's a need to put down evil and uphold righteousness. Some wars have to be fought. God, we're told, is a man of war. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. How many right-handed people here tonight? Okay, how many left-handed people here tonight? Well, you know, if you figured this out, it would probably hold to the rule, and that's that 90% of the people are right-handed, only about 10% of the people are left-handed. And the idea here that Moses is communicating is that God took a strong right-handed approach against his enemy. In other words, he acted bluntly and boldly and forcibly. You see, the Bible teaches that God is a spirit. He is spirit. It's doubtful, really, that he has human-like features like hands and feet and eyes and ears. And yet, throughout the scripture, God ascribes to himself human traits. How else can we finite, fleshly human beings really relate to an infinite God unless He speaks to us in terms that we can understand? And so there are times when He talks about the eyes of the Lord. There are times when He talks about God's ears are open to our cries. And other times that He works with a strong right hand. Whenever God speaks of Himself in human terms, we call it by a fancy term an anthropomorphism. That just means that God is trying to relate to us in terms that we can understand. Verse 7 tells us, And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heat of the sea, in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. (laughs) But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. A wind from God had parted the Red Sea for the Hebrews to cross. Then that same wind blew again and drowned the Egyptians. A strong east wind had did God's bidding. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. Again, that's because God's hand is a strong hand. That's why he calls it a right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Notice God never just brings us out. He brings us out to bring us in to something better. He brought them out of bondage into his holy habitation. And you know, God will never bring you out of something unless he's planning on bringing you into something better. Verse 14. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. When the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. In other words, God's victory over the Egyptians will strike fear in the hearts of the surrounding nations. He says, fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Now, though in the ancient world there was no internet or television news, it still didn't take long for the word to get around. Caravans and travelers would bring news from distant lands as to what was going on around the world. And these nations who might have been tempted to oppose Israel, they would know better because the news would have reached them of how God, the God of Israel, had vanquished the mighty Egyptians. He says, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In other words, in the land of Canaan. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Verse 18 is emphatic. For the Lord shall reign forever and ever. 
And here he offers proof of his ability to do so. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Any God who could do that can certainly reign forever and ever. Now after Moses writes this song, his sister Miriam picks up a tambourine. And she choreographs a dance. We don't know what the tune that Moses wrote sounded like. And we don't know what this dance looked like. But she organized some women to sing and play and dance to her brother's tune. You remember Miriam was Moses' older sister who had come to the Pharaoh's daughter after she had discovered Moses in the bulrushes and had arranged for Moses' mother to actually nurse him until he came of age. Here she leads the Hebrews in their celebration. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And if God has triumphed gloriously in your life, I hope you sing to him a song of praise. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now remember, finding water for two to three million people in the desert was no small task. And after three days out in the wilderness... Without water, the people are beginning to starve. They're beginning to thirst. They're they're feeling very uncomfortable. This was a desperate situation, really. They're they're on the verge of dehydration. On the heels of victory, they're challenged again. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Marah means bitter. Apparently, this stream that they came to was polluted. Maybe it contained a heavy mineral content. We're not sure. But what a disappointment. They finally come to water, and it's like the Yellow River. It's got foam on the top of it. It stinks. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, chapter 15 is really a strange chapter, in my opinion. It starts out with a celebration of God's mighty power, but it ends up with the people whining about no water. God just parted an ocean. Don't you think He can provide you a little drinking water? Come on. Why start grumbling already? It's been said, some people like to rise and shine. The Hebrews liked to rise and whine. We're just three days out of Egypt, and they're already murmuring against God. And sadly, this will be an all-too-common occurrence over the next 40 years. Verse 25. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. It was a tree that brought healing and brought purity. And guys, there is another tree that does the same. It's called the cross. The waters of life have also become poisoned. You know, even good things in life are no longer what they were intended to bring. They no longer bring the joy that God intended without Jesus a part of it. But Jesus, when you put Him into the mix, when you throw Jesus into the waters, boy, He makes bitter waters sweet. The cross heals even the bitter experiences of life by reminding us that Jesus loves us and that He feels what we feel and that He even uses suffering to accomplish His purposes and His plans and to work His miracles. We're told, There He made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there He tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians. Now with this tree that was tossed into the polluted waters, obviously 
This was about God's healing. The intent behind this was His healing. You know, amoebas and dysentery were a common problem among Egyptian peasants and probably plagued the Hebrew slaves at this time. They had been living in Egypt for 400 years. Sap from the tree that God introduced into the mineral water may have pulled the minerals to the bottom of the pool so that the people could drink pure water on the surface. The water would still, though, have enough minerals in it to act as a laxative and sort of flush out their digestive tract. It's interesting to me that this whole episode may have been God's way of bringing healing to these people. Remember verse 15, chapter 15, verse 26, when we discuss God's laws later concerning diet and concerning hygiene. Remember what God says, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. The regulations that God is going to impose on the Israelites are going to protect them from communicable disease and from food contamination. I've got a book in my library. It's by a medical doctor, a guy by the name of S.I. McMillan. It's entitled, None of These Diseases. And in it, he explains how that the laws of Moses were all health smart. It's interesting that Israel adopted standards and safeguards that Gentile nations didn't figure out for thousands of years. Dr. McMillan, he writes this, the biblical method for control of infectious skin diseases is unequaled in the history of ancient man. Historians credit the Bible for the dawning of a new era in the effective control of diseases. And so when later we get over to the different regulations in the law of Moses, remember that God had a purpose behind those regulations. It was a way for wilderness people to, to fight back infection and fight back disease and to keep themselves healthy. In verse 26, God follows the healing of the waters with the revealing of a new name. We're told, for I am the Lord who heals you. What a wonderful name for God. The Lord who heals you. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. A lot of dates. So they camped there by the waters. God flushes out their system, and then he brings them to a place where they can replenish themselves. The oasis of Elam could support a large contingency of people with ample food and water. Chapter 16. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. This marks the one-month anniversary of their exodus from Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against... Imagine that, they're complaining again. You're going to find these guys do nothing but grumble and complain for 40 years. They complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What an ungrateful, unbelieving group of people. I mean, they've been free for a month now, and they're already unhappy. Be glad that Israel was not a democracy. They would have voted to return to Egypt, wouldn't they? This is why God governs His people through godly leaders, not through majority rule. Oftentimes, the majority's wrong. And notice here, the three complaints, or I'm sorry, the three traits of complaining people. You might want to write these down. Here are the three traits of complaining people. Write them down. First thing they do is they rewrite history. Complaining people like to rewrite the past. They said while they were in Egypt, they sat by the pots of meat. And they ate bread to the full. Now wait a minute. When did the Egyptian slaves ever go to bed full? When did they ever sit by pots of meat? It was never as good as they claimed. Complainers tend to exaggerate the past. Second thing they did is they thought negative thoughts about the future. 
they rewrote history and then they thought negatively toward the future. God said he would bring them into a place of blessing. And now they're out there talking about starving in the desert. And then the third thing that complaining people do, they question the motivation of their leader. They question his motivation. Moses had risked his neck to stand up for these people before Pharaoh. He had behaved himself in an impeccable manner. And yet now here they are, they've ignored his track record, and they're claiming that it's his intention to kill them. Can you imagine these people? Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. In response to their grumbling, a gracious God promises them bread. And six days a week for the next 40 years... God will supernaturally provide for these people wonder bread. The original wonder bread. Each morning, he's going to rain down from heaven bread on his people. They'll exit their tents and they'll find these wafers on the ground. And God will cater them a meal every single day for the next 40 years. And the people shall go out. And gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now the test came at gathering time. God said that they will gather a certain quota. In other words, a single day's portion. Now if their faith wavered, and if the people doubted God's faithfulness, And if they kept back extra loaves, you know, just in case God doesn't come through tomorrow. I mean, while we got it, why not get it? While it's here, why not store it up? But if they acted in that kind of an unbelieving way, the stash would rot. You know, it would literally rot. They would fail the test. They had to trust God only for what they needed for that day and that day alone. Verse 5 says, And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. On day six, the Hebrews would collect for two days. This was the one exception. God will forbid work on the seventh day. It's the Sabbath day, and so on the sixth day, the people would gather a double portion. On that one day, it would not rot. God would sustain it for the next day. Then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. God promised them bread in the morning, and he promises them a covey of quail in the evening. In the morning they eat bread, at night they eat meat. That's a pretty good deal. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against Him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The Hebrews had directed their complaints at Moses, but they were actually complaining against God and against God's will. I wonder how many times we complain about our pastor or we complain about our boss or we complain about our husband or complain about our parents. And it's really not the authority over us we're complaining about. It. It's really the Lord because the Lord is the one who's placed that person in authority over you. The Lord knows the situation. He knows you know, what's happening. He's got you there for a reason, for a purpose. You think you're complaining about the situation or the person. But in reality, you're complaining about the Lord. Moses here was just a convenient scapegoat. God is sovereign over all situations. And so when we complain about the resources he provides, or the direction that he leads, or the situation that he allows, or the authority that he set over us, indeed, we are complaining about the Lord. It's been said, when we swear, we take the name of the Lord in vain, but when we grumble... We take the purposes of God in vain. Guys, it's a lot easier to complain than it is to believe. Murmuring and grumbling are really just masks for unbelief. 
Well, then Moses spoke to Aaron. Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And remember, God had provided Moses a navigation system. He was to follow a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. There are quails, a type of quail, that migrates from Europe to Arabia, and they actually cross the Sinai Peninsula. These are small birds. They have flat little heads, and they fly real close to the ground and roost in the bushes at night. They would have been easy prey for the Hebrews. Quail, interestingly, was an Egyptian delicacy. And so it's ironic here, God has the Hebrews eating better out in the desert than most Egyptians would have eaten in their own native land. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, kind of like a wafer, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And in the Hebrew, the phrase, what is it, gets translated manna. Manna. The Hebrews called it manna, but remember, God always referred to it as bread from heaven. In fact, Psalm 72 verse 25, Psalm 78 verse 25 even refers to the substance as angel's food. I like to think of it as little angel food cake wafers all over the ground there. How tasty. Whatever it was, I'm sure that if you had run chemical tests on it, you would have found that it contained 100% of the USDA daily nutritional requirements. It was the perfect food for desert life, and God was always on time with it, right on time. He never missed a meal. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. And so each individual got an omer a day of the manna. An omer was the equivalent of about seven pints. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less, depending on the number of mouths to feed in the family. And so when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. Verse 19, and Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. In other words, take only the amount that you needed for that particular day. Don't try to hoard it just in case. He says, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. After they had gathered for one day, there was still food on the ground. Look at that. Why don't we take a little bit just in case God doesn't come through tomorrow? And there were some who tried to take as much as they could. And this was not how God wanted his people to live. He wanted them to trust him day by day. Not just on occasion. When somebody comes up to you and says, how's things going? You say, well, it's day by day. You're right where God wants you to be. That's right where he wanted his people living. Day by day, trusting him. If God had allowed the people to hoard the manna, they would have fallen in love with the manna and forgotten about God. You see, it's our human tendency to trust in a surplus rather than in God. And this is why a hefty bank account can oftentimes hinder our faith. This is also why Jesus told us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord. We're willing to trust you each and every day. Jesus wants us to learn to live our lives with a daily awareness 
of our need for Him. To teach the Hebrews to walk by faith, God spoiled their excess. Verse 20 tells us, But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Stanky manna. It's terrible. And Moses was angry with them. And what do you think they did with this stinky manna? They probably took it outside and just tossed it over the fence which would make it an over-the-fence omer. Verse 21. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. Now they do this Monday through or Sunday through Friday. And if they keep, it, keep back that second day, it rots. There's worms in it. But they do this on Friday night to prepare for the Sabbath the next day, and, and, it, and it lasts. It lasts for two days. God saw to it. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Verse 25. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the Sabbath day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name Manna. Remember, though, God always called it bread from heaven. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. The, man, the manna had the texture of a seed, but the sweetness of honey. It was literally Hebrew nut and honey. Yeah. Coriander seeds, by the way, are the size of pearls. And they give off a sweet aroma. Today, they are an ingredient in gin and in curry powder and in various sweets. They're also used to flavor bread. This is how they're used in the Middle East today. It's interesting. There is a Jewish legend that describes how manna tasted. Now, I don't know if I really go with this or not. It's just a legend. It's just fun. You want to hear it? Here, here's the, the legend of how the manna tasted. Oh, excuse me. One only had to desire a certain dish. And no sooner had he thought of it than manna had the flavor of the dish desired. The same food had a different taste to everyone who partook of it, according to his age. To the children, it tasted like milk. The strong youths like bread. To the old men like honey. To the sick like barley steeped in oil and honey. It's interesting, the Jews even claim that to the Gentiles it tasted bitter. Verse 32. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were to keep back a sample of the manna for posterity's sake. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Later, Moses will take a jar of this manna and he'll place it in the Ark of the Covenant along with Aaron's rod and with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. It's a shame that we don't have that jar of manna today, isn't it? It's a shame we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. 
It's stored some way, way back in the Smithsonian Institute up in Washington, D.C. That's where Indiana Jones put it. Not really. Verse 35. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Remember, an omer was about seven pints. So the Hebrews ate an omer of manna every day for seven years. That's seven pints a day for three million people for 365 days a year for 40 years. That's a total yearly requirement of two and a half million tons of manna. That's a lot of fast food, let me tell you. Think of it this way. Let's say that we were to take over the food service for just one day. For the children of Israel in the wilderness, for just one day. And, And since we, you know, we're not God, so we can't really rain down bread from heaven. So, so we decide to feed each Hebrew a cheeseburger, some fries, and a Coke. Every day for 40 years. All right, now here's what we would need for just one day to feed 3 million Hebrews a cheeseburger, fry, and a Coke just one day. We would need 3 million beef patties, a quarter pound apiece. We want to serve them quarter pounders. That's 750,000 pounds of beef. Now, if we were shipping that by rail, it would take a train of 200 freight cars that would require 10 locomotives to pull it just to get the beef to us. We'd also need another seven cars to pull the 750,000 pounds of potatoes that we would need for the fries. Then we would need 75 cars to carry the 750,000 gallons of Coca-Cola. Then to ice down the Cokes, we would need 375,000 pounds of ice, which would require another four railroad cars. Now here's the rest of the grocery list. Buns, we would need 250,000 dozen. Mustard, 11,000 gallons. Dill pickles, 12,000 gallons. Tomatoes, 50,000 gallons. Cheese, 200,000 pounds. Onions, 175,000 pounds. And lettuce, 150,000 head. Now we're talking about a train over 300 freight cars long. Such a train would extend for three miles. And we would need to do that every day 365 days a year for 40 years. Now, imagine cooking that volume of food. If you could cook 1,000 patties per minute, and that's going to take a lot of grills, let me tell you. You would have to work 1,000 patties per minute. That would take 48 hours to cook three million burgers. Now that's not figuring the time it would take to peel and cook the fries and you could probably really get bogged down peeling the onions and the tomatoes and pouring the cokes and yet God provided the children of Israel a meal like that every single day for 40 long years. Not even Lisa Shelton and the Brooks staff could pull that off, let me tell you. Exodus chapter 17 begins. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no no water for the people to drink. Now notice that phrase. They set out according to the commandment of the Lord and they came to a place where there was no water. Notice, God leads the Hebrews to a place where there is no water. This is not what you would expect from God, is it? 
I mean, surely God always leads us to bountiful places where, where there's more than enough of what we need. God would never lead His people to a dry well. And yet that is exactly what God does. Guys, I hope you have advanced beyond a preschool faith. It's a kindergarten faith is what I like to call it. It's when people believe that bad things happen only to bad people and good things always happen to good people. That's an elementary view of things. That's not how real life really works out. You know, if we just have that kind of faith, then every time we make a decision that produces some kind of uncomfortable consequence for us, we think we've missed God's will. Not necessarily. Here, these people followed God's will to a dry well. Sometimes God leads us to difficult places. He leads us to hard times. He leads us to dry and arid periods of our life to test us and to refine us. A.W. Pink, he writes this, We need to realize that in every circumstance and situation where faith is tested, the Lord Himself brought us there. If this be apprehended, it will not be so difficult for us to trust Him to sustain us while we remain there. Verse 2 tells us, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Unbelievable. These people are griping again. And understand, there's now manna every morning. There's quail every night. And yet, just because there's no bottled water, they're ready to revolt. Verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. A lynching mob had formed. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand your rod, with which you struck the river and go. Remember the river Nile when he turned it to blood. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Here's another miracle. God, Moses takes his rod, his shepherd's staff, and he strikes the rock with it, and suddenly the stone turns into a sprinkler. I mean, water begins to gush out. It quenches the people's thirst. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, gives us an, a commentary on this particular story. Paul reveals that there's a spiritual application to this passage. He writes of these Hebrews, All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, when Moses struck the rock, he was not only supplying water to the thirsty people, but he was also painting a picture of how God was going to slake our spiritual thirst. You see, in the Bible, the rock is an idiom for the Messiah. Remember Daniel's vision where he saw the rock cut out without hands, striking the image at the feet. That rock was a picture of Jesus. It's interesting, on the cross, what did God do but strike the rock? God struck Christ on the, on the cross. And 50 days after the crucifixion, the Holy Spirit, the living water, was poured out at Pentecost, bringing spiritual refreshment to thirsty souls. You remember Jesus cried out in John 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, spiritual life gushes out from our rock, Jesus Christ. God struck the rock, Jesus. And from that rock, spiritual water has come out to satisfy our thirst. Verse 7 tells us, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, which means tempted 
and contentious. They had tempted God. They were contentious people. Because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Now notice, a month after Israel is saved from bondage, he is now thrust into war. Which also is an interesting lesson for us. Become a friend of God and don't be surprised when you end up a target for Satan. Don't be surprised. There is a spiritual battle raging in this world. Life is not a playground. Life is a battleground. And you become a Christian. When you choose sides and get on God's side, you suddenly realize just how real this battle is. When these nomadic Amalekites heard that a new watering hole had opened up at Rephidim, they came to grab it for themselves. And so Israel fought against the Amalekites. And the manner in which they prevail teaches us how we can be victorious in the spiritual skirmishes that we fight. It's also interesting that the Hebrew historian Josephus, he points out that the Hebrews got the weapons from the Egyptians that had drowned in the Red Sea. Apparently at the shores of the Red Sea, God had worked another miracle and He had made all of the metal swords and spears and armor float all the way back to the top of the water, back to the banks where the Hebrews could pluck the weapons out of the, out of the sea and then use them in this battle against the Amalekites. God had foreseen the nation's need for weapons and had provided them in advance. Well, verse 9 tells us how this victory was won. And Moses said to Joshua... Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand... Amalek prevailed. It was a seesaw battle. As long as Moses held the rod of God high in the air, the people were encouraged and they prevailed against the enemy. But the moment Moses' arms got tired and he started to let his hands slip and the rod disappeared from view, the Amalekites would get the upper hand. But Moses' hands became heavy, we're told. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and her, they kind of swung around on his sides. And they supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The arms of Moses had to be supported for Israel to win the battle. And this is a key for us in the spiritual battles that we face. You see, uplifted hands are a sign of our faith. We're reaching out to heaven for help. We're trusting in God to win the victory. But oftentimes our faith gets tired, doesn't it? Our arms get weary. And they begin to droop. And our faith begins to drop. And it's at that point that we need the support of our friends. We need Aaron. We need her to come alongside us and help us keep those arms up and keep that faith strong until God wins the victory. Charles Spurgeon once said this, Friendship is one of the sweetest joys of life. Many might have failed beneath the bitterness of their trial had they not found a friend. It's friends that help keep your arms high until the victory is won. This is why the lone ranger for Jesus, and I hope you're not him, But this is why that lone ranger for Jesus, that isolated Christian, is destined to fall. For when his faith gets weary and when he gets tired, there's no one in his life to help him keep his arms up. Hey, we all need each other. Sometimes we're Moses in need of a lift. At other times we're Aaron or her. Or you might even be a him 
But we're the person who comes alongside and provides that lift. But for you and I to win the victory, we need each other to help hold each other's arms high. Verse 14 tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord will be the banner of Israel. Every army needs a flag, and the flag that will fly high over the armies of Israel will be the Lord Jehovah. The Lord will fight their battles. In chapter 18, boy, oh boy, I knew I was going to get a call right here at this time, so... Well, why don't we finish? Why don't we just, we'll just leave it right there tonight and we'll pick up. I'm debating. I wanted to do chapter 18 tonight, but I've really run out of time. My wife's not in the nursery tonight, so maybe I could keep going. But somebody's wife is in the nursery tonight. And you remember that big plug I, I made this morning for nursery workers? So, for the respect of the nursery workers... We're going to leave it right there tonight, and we'll pick up in chapter 18 next Sunday night. Don't want to do anything to lose any nursery workers. Join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. We thank you for the lessons that we've learned tonight. And Father, we think of these Hebrews and we think of how they grumbled and complained and they weren't thankful. And even a month after you had worked such miracles, they were already complaining. And then when we think about this, Lord, it reminds us of another group of people. Reminds us of ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for grumbling and complaining. Forgive us, Lord, for complaining about the authorities over us, about the circumstances you've allowed, about the resources you've provided. You're a great God. You know what we need, even more than we know. Forgive us, Lord, for our grumbling attitude, our murmuring spirit. And help us, Lord, to trust you, to trust you. I guess 